Howdy folks, today we're asking whether the exposure triangle had its day in contemporary photography and whether there are better ways to think about exposure. With the advent of mirrorless cameras, does the idea of the exposure triangle still hold water in 2024? Well, to answer this very question, I have invited a very special guest on the show today, right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography. And uh, of course, we're giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz. And if you like me and you enjoy free podcasts and YouTube content, then you can become a supporter of the show by buying us a coffee over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. But of course, you're more than welcome to say no, no hard feelings at all. Just know that your support really does make a difference. Now, without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the award-winning photojournalist, portrait photographer par excellence, author, the man behind the last frame himself, Give it up for Mr. Joe Edelman. Joe, it's amazing to have you back on the show. How are you? Kirsten, it's great to be here after that intro. I think we should stop here before I mess it all up. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Of course, what our listeners and viewers won't know is that I completely screwed up that intro. Um, that's just what happens when this bloody teleprompter doesn't do what it's supposed to be doing. But there you go. <laughs> So how are you? It's been it's been a while since you've been on the show. I'm so glad to have you back. Um, it's uh, I had a look actually. So in, you know, as I was prepping for for this episode, um, there's been quite a while. I think it was episode eighty seven or something like that, eighty three. Um, last time you were on the show, that's, yeah, that's like that's pretty much exactly a hundred episodes ago. That's incredible. Wow. Okay. So that's good. So first of all, then I'll expect to be back in a hundred, you know, more. But yeah, it's it's been a while. You guys were were pretty kind of early in the mix, um, but still kicking, still doing my thing, still causing trouble. Joe, just give us sort of a, an umbrella view um, of the things that you do, because a lot of people will know you um, as a YouTube educator, and of course, you're doing uh, weekly live streams now as well. Yes. Yes. So. Um, We'll work backwards. Uh, I do a weekly show on YouTube called The Last Frame Live. Um, it is uh, a little bit of a mix of kind of what's going on in the photography industry, some photography advice. I do a section called Photo Quote of the Week, where I try to introduce people to uh, really some iconic photographers, uh, not necessarily old and dead, even some currently live ones, but photographers that have not only an incredible body of work, but who have also shared a great deal of information behind that work that we can really learn something from. Uh, we do some advice, and then we also do a photography Q&A where we try to solve problems for people, things that they're struggling with. Maybe it's gear, maybe it's technique, maybe it's business. And then beyond that, um, I just try to have fun. I'm not going to lie. I've been taking pictures for 52 years. So what I'm most known for at this point, if you go to my website or any of my socials, are these kind of crazy, creative fashion and beauty portraits. Um, it's just really an opportunity to be able to have some fun, be able to push the envelope creatively. Uh, and most of what I create now is being used for education. It's either going to be in articles or videos or part of a presentation. 
it's, you know, your quotes is something I look out for on social media all the time because they keep popping up and I'm thinking, oh yeah, there's another one of Joe's quotes. Excellent. <laughs> it does really make yeah, my day. I, I've been having a lot of fun with them. And if I'm being honest, uh, I feel like I'm making amends for being an idiot when I was younger. When, when I was a teenager getting into photography, I did not have a lot of respect, honestly, for photographers that came before me because my thought process was, well, yeah, that's that's how it used to be. That's what other people did. I wasn't interested. And sadly, all those people told me that I, you know, told me I should have been paying attention. They were right. And I'm learning that now because as I'm researching these photography quotes and every one of those photography quotes, by the way, is attached to a page on my website where you can go uh, read the biography of that photographer link. There are links to photographs that they've taken. There are also videos embedded on the page that are either interviews with the photographer or stories about the photographer, as well as links to books that they've done. So there's a ton of information on my website about each of them. And as I'm researching that, putting it together, I'm realizing that ultimately I've missed out on a lot of great education when I was younger because these people were sharing really great knowledge uh, and sharing it in a way that was understandable and honestly would have been really, really helpful. So for anybody that hasn't been kind of looking at the greats in the past, even if you don't do it on my website, that's fine, but do it. There's there's a lot to be learned from those that came before us. Oh, absolutely. It's an interesting thing. Actually, and ultimately, it's something that we're going to be talking about um, on, on this episode. Um, it, learning things or education in general is an interesting thing because on one hand, um, you know, we're always, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, you know, or walking in the footprints of giants, whatever the saying is, mm -hmm. I can't remember. But, yeah. <laughs> but the, the idea being um, is that, of course, we're, you know, we, we are learning from those who, you know, went before us, obviously. But then on the other hand, of course, um, photography in particular has seen such drastic changes by way of yep. technological development over the last I mean, I would I would say uh, particularly I would say uh, since the early since the early '90s or, or maybe the, the mid '90s or something. Since I think since the advent of really of digital, and now yep. of course we're into mirrorless cameras and and all the rest of it, and it changes the mm -hmm. way that we make photography. It doesn't change the basic rules around it, of course, but it it means that you know we have different tools um, available to us that potentially require different approaches. Oh, absolutely. So it, and and I would even suggest it just change some of the basic rules. But yeah, I mean, photography at this point, it's light years ahead of where it was when I started in, in the early 1970s. And, and also part of the reason for that, if we set the technology aside for a moment, because of that technology, we can go back to... Uh, George Eastman's dream of, you know, putting a camera in everybody's hands with a Kodak Brownie, right? Photography is more accessible to people today than, than ever. So it, it also kind of takes on a whole different dimension in our society in terms of how we perceive it, how we prioritize it, um, which I know frustrates some people, but I honestly, I think it's awesome. I think it's, it's to me, this is like the greatest time ever to be involved in photography because of all this cool technology and because of how important it is to everybody, even just the average person walking around with a phone. Exactly. I mean, you know, even if you think that, you know, virtually all 
with maybe with the exception of X, formerly known as Twitter. I don't know if we have, do we have to say that all the time? Formerly known as Twitter? I don't know. I, I, they say yeah, it I haven't figured out what the right line for that is yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially since since uh, the proliferation of, you know, smartphones and, of course, the fact that social media platforms are by and large visual platforms. I mean, you, know, sure. you can even take something like, like Facebook, for example, which I know, you know, if you're under the age of 35, you're probably not even going to bother with Facebook. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, Facebook is despite the fact that there's a lot of text content on there, really predominant, predominantly a visual platform still, because nobody pays sure. attention to a post that's only text. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, you know, what's the phrase today? No pictures? It didn't happen. So yeah. it's like, you know. Exactly. Just, yeah. That's it. I mean, you know, and so it's, you know, it's interesting to me um, that, you know, you very often come across uh, or come up against this sort of attitude where people say, like, well, everybody's a photographer now because everybody's got a smartphone. And, you know, I always think, well, no, everybody's able to take pictures whenever they want because everybody's got a smartphone. That's uh, the slightest away from being a photographer because just because I can string two sentences together doesn't make me an author. Right. You know, the, the yep. basic principles and the need for education still exists just the same. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I, I think part of the challenge in that whole conversation is People tend to get a little bit too involved in other people's business. Uh, you know, if we're if we're being honest, if we go to the dictionary and we look up the word photographer, uh, it just says that a photographer is a person who takes pictures. And then, as one of the sub pieces, it will say sometimes professionally, but it does not mandate that you have to be a professional, right? So, yeah, I always tell people, I don't care what level you're at. I think the most important thing for everybody to remember is why you take pictures? Why is photography important to you? Uh, I think where that conversation becomes so abrasive because you routinely hear people, you know, I hate to say the word, but whining about, oh, there's so many photographers. Everybody thinks they can take pictures. Yeah. Everybody does think they can take pictures because everybody can take a decent picture without a ton of knowledge. But as you indicate, that's a lot different than being able to consistently take great pictures, being able to produce a professional quality, you know, result. So what happens in our industry is I find people tend to get earlier on in the learning curve. They tend to get kind of a false sense of ability, thinking that they are capable of a little bit more than they actually are. And, you know, I don't say it in a, in a way of being smart. I, I say it in a way of I think it's something that we should be aware of and try and find maybe better ways to communicate to people that these cameras are great. These cameras do incredible things for us, but you still need that foundational knowledge if you want to be able to rely on them consistently and produce a, a you know a professional product on a regular basis. But you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to why do you why do you do it? Why do you enjoy it? And I think if anybody focuses on that and less on what everybody else is doing and says, they have a lot more opportunity to continue to enjoy it and to improve what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the thing is, um, I mean, this another thing I hear a lot is like, you know, people say like, oh, well, you know, how can you still make a living as a, as a photographer now that everybody can take pictures with a, with a smartphone? Like, do people still need headshots? They could just, you know, do a selfie on their phone. And I always say like, well, yes, they can. And I'm sure... A lot of people do. That's fair. Yep. But you know, in commercial photography, the way I describe it is is every photo I take or every shot that I create has a function, has a purpose. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it may be that 
it has to generate sales for for the client. It may be that yep. it's representing the company through the imagery, you know, but every photo has a purpose. And so the ability to take those shots goes far, far, far beyond just being sure. able to operate the camera. And that's that's, that's sort of the difference, you know, in a, in a professional sense. Um, and, and all of these, you know, the tool that, that you use, I mean, I say to people like, I would love the day, the day that I can take my smartphone with me instead of all my camera gear, that's going to be the greatest day because I could slip that yep. smartphone in my pocket, jump on my Vespa, and off I go rather yep. than having to we're, like... We're getting close. We're getting, we're getting close. close. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you know, in, in a sense... Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with you. I mean, when somebody, you know, you mentioned commercial photography, when, when somebody reaches out to you and says, hey... Uh, I need a picture for an ad or or even better yet, it's just something as simple as a portrait. Yep. So many photographers are quick to jump and say, I can shoot a portrait, which is actually the wrong response. That person who's asked you that question assumes that since you're a photographer, you're the expert. So really the best response is not, sure, I can shoot a portrait. The best response is, why? Now, I don't mean like in a smart kind of way, but why? What do you need the portrait for? Because... A portrait is not a portrait is not a portrait. A portrait that's going to go in a fancy frame above the fireplace is likely going to be lit and posed with a very different kind of background than a portrait that's going to be used for a company's website or for a LinkedIn profile or a dating profile, right? So each of yeah. those has its own unique set of rules and guidelines, which is also part of the reason why we always have to be careful we, you know, when we say, well, if you're going to do a portrait, you should light it this way or you should shoot it this way. Well, that depends on what kind of portrait it is. And exactly. then if you do crazy creative portraits like me, I don't want to hear any of those rules because it's <laughs> out the window. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I say this all the time. And I've said millions of times on this podcast. You know, It's like to be, you can take headshots is, is a really good example. The first thing I need to know is what the purpose of the shot is, You know, who the person is that I'm photographing. And what it is that they that they want to convey through that through that portrait, you know, through the headshot. So that initial conversation <laughs> where we have a chat about, you know, who they are, what they do, um, that's really that's absolutely uh, super important because it informs everything that happens after that, you know. And I always right. give this example, like, you know, imagine um, imagine a nurse or a medical professional, a doctor or something, and then contrast that with a divorce lawyer. Like these are completely different people that need to. Bring something completely different, a different message across in there in the headshot, and consequently, yep. I'm going to light them differently. I'm going to post them differently. I'm going to shoot them completely differently, um, because yep. because that that photo has a function, a purpose, a job, and that's right. that's the thing. That's that's really where the you know the, the expertise and the knowledge and all that kind of that stuff comes in. You know, I can teach somebody how to create a great headshot, and I can teach them like five different lighting setups to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's still going to be down to that person to decide which setup they're going to use, how they're going to set a particular shoot up for a particular client that they have based on what the purpose of that is, you know, obviously. Sure. And that's that's ultimately, I think that's a mistake a lot of new photographers make. What you've just described is ultimately what people are paying for, not the picture. They're paying for the knowledge, for the expertise, for being able to make the right decisions, which means that for somebody who wants to be a professional photographer, really what ha has to happen is that you've got to run a great business. And the reward for running a great business is two things. One, you're going to make some money. That's the part everybody thinks of. But 
The other part is you actually get to take pictures, right? Just, you know, kind of putting up a shingle that says, I'm a professional photographer doesn't mean you're going to get to take any pictures, at least not for money. It's the expertise that people are after. That's what they're really paying for. Absolutely. Now, we started, I started the intro um, by saying, you know, we, we could be talking about um, whether the exposure triangle is still what we all, what we're all supposed to think it is. Um, right. And it's it really, I think the, uh, what's the word? Uh, the, the start of that conversation was really a conversation that we had um, last week where, um, you know, we were talking about how, you know, how, how one hand photography education has changed or to put into better words, how the world around us and technology has changed so that maybe we need to think about how we would change, how we could change the way that we educate photographers today Absolutely. in 20, I'll say in 2024, because although we're recording this episode in 2023, I'm pretty sure it'll actually air yeah. in 2024. So that's <laughs> right. We're right, <laughs> right up against the end of the year. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we're kind of at a tipping point. I look at it as a tipping point, be in part because of all these technology pieces you and I have just talked about. You know, digital technology hit the mainstream in the year 2000. That was when Nikon released the Nikon D1. So that was the first commercially available digital camera. Yes, prior to that, there were the Frankenstein cameras of the Kodak digital backs on Nikon bodies. But D1, that was the start of the real start of where we're at now. Since that time, as an industry, we really have not changed the way we teach photography. Um, most importantly, based around how the cameras work and how the cameras are designed to work. Part of that is because, and I don't want to make this sound like a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy theory, but you know, a little bit of research, folks, don't take my word for it. I'm some guy on YouTube. Go do a little research and you'll find out. Um, back in the 1980s, when companies like Kodak and Nikon were working on the digital sensors, and of course, Kodak was the real driving force behind all of that technology, as they started to look forward, Nikon in particular, with the idea that, hey, we want to make these cameras commercially available, they had a very smart realization. And that realization was that photographers would not adopt this new technology if they started changing the terminology. And they started using new phrases and new names for things. And, you know, I would say that that was very wise of them because, Kirsten, you know as well as I do, photographers, we don't panic about anything that's forward-looking AI in mind, right? So, you know, as an industry, they very wisely realized we, we have to try and keep this as much the same as it was with film as possible. The problem with that was is sensors in cameras have nothing in common with film at all. Film was, you know, using a chemical process to create sensitivity. Cameras don't use that. In fact, as much as they are digital cameras, the sensors in cameras today are actually analog. They're not digital. What makes them digital is the fact that they take the analog data that the sensor accumulates and they digitize it using firmware and software to create the image. So just in that one little tidbit, you already see, wow, like the conversations that we have about exposure and exposure triangle, none of it carries forward. Somewhere in the course of that whole process happening, 
So we've already established first camera came out in 2000. Um, I know when I started teaching, which was about 2009, I ran into a few people at talks that I did that started talking about this thing called the exposure triangle. And I'm not going to lie. I went home the first time I heard this thinking, I feel like a bit of a fraud. I've never heard of an exposure triangle. And I Googled it and didn't find a lot of information on it in 2009, but found some information. It's like, well, okay, three things that make sense, right? But uh, in fact, in 2009, there were very few images of the exposure triangle online. So recently, I finally started doing some research. So here's the facts, folks. Um, the exposure triangle didn't start out as the exposure triangle. It started out in 1995, excuse me, 1990, my apologies. This book, it's a book by American photographer, Brian Peterson, very well-known photographer. It's called Understanding Exposure, uh, How to Shoot Great Photographs. In the introduction to the book, and it's also on the back cover, so I apologize, I'm going to read it off the back cover. Um, he explains how to successfully combine aperture, shutter speed, and film into elements that Peterson refers to as the photographic triangle. No exposure triangle, nowhere in the book is there a picture or diagram of a triangle. Now, this was 1990. 15 years later, 2005, this book comes out. Better Photo Guide to Digital Photography. This book was written by a gentleman named Jim Miyake, who at the time that this book was written, his full-time job was web developer for Alaska Airlines. But in 1996, this gentleman had started um, one of the first photography communities online called betterphoto.com, which still exists today. It's a great community, right? None of this is anything negative towards these people. But in his book on page 60, he talks about the exposure triangle. And he starts out by saying that Brian Peterson referred to this photographic triangle, it might better be thought of as an exposure triangle. Nowhere in Miyake's book is there a picture or a diagram with a triangle. Two pages later in Miyake's book, he goes on to talk about how changing the ISO changes the sensitivity to light of the sensor. This information was already wrong in 2005 because this is digital photography that we're talking about, right? So the first diagrams of the exposure triangle didn't show up until around 2009 online. And at first it was just a triangle with three corners. If you go and look up the exposure triangle now and click on the images tab, you'll find literally millions of results with thousands of variations of how it's all put together, none of which are functional. So at best, the exposure triangle became a memory technique, a memory technique to remember three settings on your camera, shutter speed, aperture, and ISO. But it involves no understanding, which by the way, that's what Peterson suggested is the importance of understanding how they all work. So really what it is, folks, it's something that uh, is referred to as the Mandela effect. For years, people thought that Nelson Mandela had died in the 1980s. He didn't die until 2013. And now it's a commonly accepted term in the world of psychology. Um, 
it's just not a thing. There's no real value to it. Once we understand how ISO works, and by the way, ISO still exists because that was the one key setting that the engineers realized if they took ISO away, photographers would be really freaked out. All ISO is, think of your stereo systems at home or your radio in your car. ISO is gain, it's volume. You turn it up, it gets brighter. You turn it down, it gets darker. In the early 2000s, I think any photographer that was shooting digital in the early 2000s, if they're still shooting today, probably has a little bit of PTSD from the noise. You couldn't raise your ISO more than a stop, two stops at best before you just had a horrible noise. It just wasn't, wasn't usable. Cameras today aren't like that. The sensors have gotten better at collecting light. The software has gotten much better at interpreting the light. And we also, you know, and I'm trying to leave the software out of the conversation, but keep in mind, we also had this amazing noise reduction software, not to mention AI noise reduction software. So we're at a point where this concern for raising your ISO is less and less of an issue. So it's time to kind of rethink the way we look at setting exposure. I and find so you know, the, when the, I talk to camera clubs, go ahead. It's, you're absolutely right because this, there's, there's almost like a built-in, I don't know, like a barrier when it comes to raising the ISO. Because you know, when we're balancing our exposure in, uh, in, in particular situations, like I'm thinking like, for instance, concert photography, um, any kind of low-light photography might be, might be um, you know, sports we're talking about. I shoot a lot of boxing. Um, you know, you, you're in a, in fact, this is quite funny because after we had our conversation the other day, I, I went and I shot a boxing event. And it was probably the worst lit event I've shot all year. It was absolutely terrible. It was terrible. Um, but I know from, I mean, I, you know, from experience, I now know that I can, I don't necessarily have to be that nervous about bumping up the ISO on, on my Ooh. camera, you know, but this has been a, a real struggle. You, you don't think twice when you raise the shutter speed, you know, you don't think twice when you open up the aperture. But for some reason, when it comes to the ISO, you're like automatically, you know, your your hands start trembling, you know, you start shaking, you know, sweat sweat appears on your yep. forehead. You go, oh, I don't know if I can do that, you know, and um, and it's 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 really nonsense because you know, it's like I said, modern cameras. I'm talking about, you know, what what where whichever generation that is now, like third, fourth generation digital cameras, and we're talking about sure, like you know, yeah. the R5s of this world, the R3s, um, the the Nikon Z. I well, if you're a Sony user, it. it's like 20th generation, but yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's it, yeah. <laughs> you know, but even, like I'm, you know, I used to shoot uh, boxing matches. It's something I do sometimes, you know, but I have downtime, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I used to shoot them on a D750, which was a DSLR. Sure. And yep. I knew on that camera that, you know, 3200, I get a decent image you know, just about, but that was kind of like, you know, 6,400 was getting a little bit critical. I was getting a lot of noise um, at that point, but 3,200 I, I could live quite happily with. Um, so then when I switched to the Z6 II, um, that sensor actually performs a lot better in low light situations. Um, mm -hmm. And I had this self-imposed limit of 6400. I kind of thought, well, it's another stop. It's a newer camera. It must be another stop. Let's do that. Yep. And it was perfectly fine. But when I found myself 
um, shooting that that event uh, last Saturday. The lighting was horrendous. It was terrible. Um, it was the most underlit. I mean, actually, in fact, it got to the point where I thought it was it must be dangerous having two people in it. They can't see right. I mean, it's dimly lit. You don't really, I mean, how can you, you know, and boxing is still there. I mean, of course, they wear all the safety gear, head, right. head um, uh, protection and all the rest of it, but it's still dangerous, but, uh, you know, it's boxing. So, and I kind of thought, you know what? 6,400 isn't, isn't doing it. It's we're we have to we have to go to ten thousand, and I shot uh-huh. the entire event at ten thousand ISO the whole the whole mm-hmm. thing, and mm-hmm. first of all when I checked the images on the back of the screen because that's all I can do at that moment, they actually looked okay, you know they uh-huh. looked surprisingly okay, um, and then when I came home and I put them on a computer. It was like, uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't see much of a difference between 6,400 and 10,000. It made almost zero difference, you know? Um, they were The images were absolutely fine. Um, I, I didn't even have to go into, like, the AI noise reduction. Um, you know, it was very... I, I just did a very basic, very basic noise reduction treatment on the whole thing. Um, sure. Just as I... Uh, you know, across the whole, the whole lot, the whole catalog. Um, yep. And the image was absolutely fine. And you know, given how much I was sweating at the time, <laughs> thinking, yeah. "Oh my God, yep. you know, this is like this is this is ruins." You know, what is the client going to think? Blah blah. blah. Mm-hmm. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Oh, so, I, I'm, uh, I'm with you 100. percent I mean, I think I think anybody that shot with DSLRs, and especially if they were shooting in the 2000s, is is going to have that kind of fear for a long time. There, there's so there's a couple things that that I recommend that people kind of try to get their heads wrapped around when it comes to the ISO conversation. Because as much as I'm trying to take exposure triangle off the table, I, I do have a recommendation for a workflow, which we can get to. But with the, with regards to ISO, uh, there's a couple things. Number one, um, a lot of the ISO conversation, and I find frequently that people that are screaming the loudest about not wanting to raise the ISO and wanting to stick it their base ISO all the time, those are the same people that immediately download an image, blow it up to 400% and look for noise. And then they finish that image and post it on Instagram. Come on, folks. Like, let's be real, right? Now, I'm, I'm trying not to judge in terms of, I was a film shooter for much of my career. I didn't mind grain unless I was push processing black and white film. It was kind of nice to have a little bit of that I like to call texture in an image. It gave an image some feeling. Somewhere in the like 2005 to 2015 era in our industry, we kind of crossed this line where suddenly any kind of texture in an image became bad. Like it was absolute no go. And now here we are in 2023 where people will spend hundreds of dollars for software and plugins to put noise back into the picture. Go figure, right? Yeah. So First, there's, you know, let's be realistic about noise. But then there's a, a little test that I recommend, especially for mirrorless camera shooters. I recommend every mirrorless camera shooter does this when they when they buy a new camera. And when I say new camera, a different model than, than what they've had previously. Uh, I call it the ISO tolerance test. Every digital mirrorless camera on the market today, number one, has a feature called auto ISO, which we can talk about in a minute. But Part of that auto ISO feature, it allows you to set a maximum ISO so that that camera will never go above that ISO unless you very manually take it over that. 
So to do an ISO test, simply you do it in your living room, you can do it in your kitchen, set the camera on a table, set it on a tripod, and at your base ISO, figure out a perfect exposure for whatever the camera is looking at. And take one frame. Then what you're going to do is you're going to increase the ISO by a full stop. You don't have to do third stop ISOs with this folks. All you need to do is full stop. So if your base ISO is 100, you're going to do a test at 100, 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, all the way up to wherever your camera stops. And each time you adjust the ISO, of course, you do need to make an adjustment of shutter speed or aperture so you still have a proper exposure. So the idea being when you download your images off of that card, at first glance, before you blow anything up, they're all going to look the same because they're small and the exposure is going to be the same across the board. So then what you're going to do is you're going to go ahead and you're going to blow them up to 100%, not 200, not 300, 100%. And you're going to view them at your normal viewing distance on your computer screen, not three inches away. And all you're looking to see is what is the highest ISO that I can tolerate before the noise is too much, right? So like Kristen, you just mentioned, you know, getting up to 6,400, you found that that was actually a very tolerable ISO for you. So whatever that number becomes, and, and notice folks, I'm not telling you what your numbers should be. It's a personal choice. Nobody's taking control away from you. But by knowing that number and then setting that number as your maximum ISO, you can now go forward and completely change the way that you think about exposure. And that brings me to my recommendation. And this is what I've been doing now for about two years. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't start doing it sooner when I started shooting mirrorless because I've been shooting mirrorless now for I think probably about seven years, maybe eight years. Um, but it's been about two years ago that I finally convinced myself I convinced myself it made sense. I couldn't convince myself emotionally to let go and actually do it. But if I'm not in the studio, so anything outside the studio where I'm not using flash, I'm working with you know available light, natural light, whatever you want to call it, I'm working on auto ISO. So there's a phrase that I use to communicate it. Choose your shutter speed with purpose. Choose your aperture with feeling and adjust the brightness with ISO. So now, just to break that down, think about it. Shutter speed, that's a purpose-driven setting, right? You're making sure that one, you're either not going to have subject motion in your shot, or two, that you're not you know, going to be shaking the camera, which even though we have great image stabilization, I still like to use the camera's image stabilization kind of as my backup to my skill set unless it's an extreme situation. And by the way, it's worth noting, there are times where you want to creatively have blur. Understandable. There's always going to be exceptions, folks. The only things in photography with no exceptions are the physics, right? Anything creative, there there are exceptions. But most well, of your yeah, shooting... So, some people you, say, you, some people say the only time camera shake is a good thing is when you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> Well, there you go. Actually, there's your plug. That's that's perfect. I'm sorry that I missed that. I should have thought of that. <laughs> so, um, so shutter speed, purpose driven setting, and and I would recommend to everyone that should be the first setting you shoot. Now, I know all of you landscape photographers are about to scream at the YouTube screen right now. Give me a second. Stick with me. 
all we're talking about here is building a habit, right? Because I know the landscape photographers are going to say aperture is the most important setting. I didn't say your shutter speed was most important. I said, you should do it first, right? Get that out of the way because that's an easy one to, to set, done, right? Then aperture, aperture really is kind of an emotional setting. That's why I say choose it with feeling. Are you looking for razor thin depth of field so your picture's got that kind of dreamy look? Or do you like shooting it like 0.95 with razor, th razor thin depth of field so it looks like you cut your subject out and pasted them on the picture. If that's your thing, cool, okay? Or if you're a landscape photographer, do you need a lot of depth of field because you want the entire scene in focus, right? So aperture, second setting with feeling. And then the last setting is now, because now what you've done is you've taken the two settings that are going to have the most impact on your shot. And you know that you're going to have your shot looking exactly the way that I want it. The last setting is the ISO. And remember, this is a conversation for mirrorless photographers. So you have EVFs, electronic viewfinders. You're seeing the finished picture in the viewfinder. If you let the camera adjust the ISO, it's going to pick whatever ISO is necessary. So for me, I'm a, a Sony shooter. This back dial is my exposure compensation control. So when I'm shooting, oops, let me get back in the frame here. Sorry. When I'm shooting the entire time I'm shooting, my thumb is sitting on the exposure compensation dial. So as I'm looking through my camera, if the exposure is a little light, I'm going to dial one way. If the exposure is a little dark, I'm going to dial the other way in real time. What this gives me when I'm all said and done is a guarantee that none of my pictures are going to be blurry. I guarantee that I'm going to have the right amount of depth of field in all of my shots because it's part of my workflow and I've thought about those. And then also guarantee that if I take 300 images in an afternoon, even if I'm on vacation walking around with my camera, when I download them, they're all going to be properly exposed, not too light, not too dark, because all I had to do was thumb that exposure compensation up and down. That is not only the simplest and easiest, but it's honestly the most sensible way to set exposure with a mirrorless camera. DSLR folks, that's a little different conversation yet because obviously you're not seeing the finished image when you look through that viewfinder. That's an optical viewfinder. But uh, even for you folks that are sh still shooting DSLRs, you'll come over to the dark side sooner or later, right? So, um, it, you know, it, eventually they're not going to keep making DSLRs. It's just bound yeah. to happen. So I'm not saying, hey, run out and buy a mirrorless today, but down the road, yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, you can, you can use the, the, you know, the built-in light meter in in the camera sure. to uh, to to yep. get a very similar um result i mean i, I remember right. you, you're you know, going to be watching the bars at the bottom or on the side wherever yeah. they have it exactly yeah yeah because i mean exactly, you're you know, you're you're relying on the numbers more so than the visual but absolutely it's going to give you the the same you know same net result that would require you a little bit more of the the kind of film type thinking of well i know in this situation the camera's going to tend to overexpose or underexpose yeah. One of the luxuries with mirrorless is you don't have to know, is it going to underexpose or exactly. overexpose because you're seeing it real time. And for somebody that can still do that, I can still walk into a room and I can tell you the exposure in that room. I had to do that as a newspaper photographer when I was, was younger because back in the 70s, the first thing that broke on a camera was the meter because the meters were up in the little dingy pentaprisms that were made out of aluminum, right? So that was the first thing that went in your camera. I can still do that. And it's kind of a useless skill 
at this point because I don't ever need to think about those things. When I've got that camera up to my face, it's as simple as too light or too dark. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypod products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home in the studio and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. You know, that's an interesting point because um, it's a skill that used to be necessary, but it's not anymore because of the advancement of technology. And so we're, you know, we're, we're kind of at the same point. History repeats itself, so to say. You know, we're at the same point yeah. where because of the mirrorless technology that, you know, that we all enjoy now, um, you know, certain, it, it just means that we have to make decisions differently, you know. Um, yes. And, you know, just kind of coming back to, I mean, adjusting exposure using the meter, for instance, um, you know, I shoot a lot of concerts and uh, when I used to shoot with a D750, which is a DSLR, not a mirrorless camera, um, what I used to do was, uh, and I kind of still do that with concerts, um, is I... I set my camera up so that I regulate the shutter speed with thumb dial. And so my eyes always locked, um, my uh, aperture is locked, and I basically just vary the shutter speed. Um, and so mm -hmm. I can, because of course when you're shooting a concert, the lighting conditions change very rapidly because the lights go yep. all over the place and so on and so forth. And that's mm -hmm. really, you know, it's a recommended uh, method. Um, and I know a lot of a lot of my concert photographer colleagues out there use that method and it works really well. Um, what I used to do with the D750 was um, I knew that very often I would sort of reach the limits of uh, what I could do with the ISO because I knew that past a certain point, sure. you know, I would get a lot of noise. But I also knew that if I undershot by about a stop, um, I can bring that up in Lightroom without any problems, you know, right. so I used to watch my meter whilst I was shooting. I used to watch the bar, mm -hmm. but I used to basically my zero point, if you want, was one stop under. So I always used to shoot one stop right. under, and what that meant was um, I could actually get, you know, yeah. I mean, all the images were stop dark when they came into Lightroom, uh, but I could bring them back up. And it seems to be nonsensical, but actually the end result was better looking than had I shot them in mm -hmm. camera, you know. And for some reason right. that worked. So. That's how I used to do it, but it just you know it just goes to show that you know if you know what you what you're going to track, of course, and with mirrorless technology, you don't have to do that anymore because you can see the end result right there. Yep, and, and that is the beauty of it. And again, it's important to understand. Can't can't stress it enough that there are always in photography going to be exceptions to. I, don't, I hate to say rule. Rule is one of those words. I just hate that word. But there there are always going to be exceptions. Um, the discussion that we're having here, you know, about using auto ISO and, and working with exposure compensation is for me, 
the way that I look at it, it it's one trying to address kind of the, the the biggest population of photography that, that that takes place. Number one, number two, um, resetting the priorities. Um, if you go back ten years before mirrorless cameras really started to you know hit the the the, the mainstream and and take it over, um, you can still find online tons of information where. Um, there are arguments in every genre of photography. Well, shutter speed's most important. Aperture's most important. ISO's most important. I mean, let's not even forget, we haven't talked about the idea of shooting aperture mm -hmm. priority or shutter priority, which is completely pointless with a mirrorless camera, completely pointless with a mirrorless camera. But yet people still do it. Those are features that still exist in the cameras. Why? Because the camera manufacturers understand that if they change things too much, too fast, people freak out right yep. so our cameras right now the irony of you know all this great technology we have because remember these these aren't really cameras they're computers let's just keep it real they take pictures and so we call them cameras which i think is incredible but that also means that they have much more built into them and much more capability than they ever did but right now we also have features built into them that do not really represent what the cameras do and do not really represent the way the cameras are best designed to work. The features are still there because photographers expect them to be there because photographers tend to not like change. Exactly. So that's, but, that's the count. And I tell, I tell you a real life application of, um, of auto ISO and, you know, I've, I thought mm -hmm. about and this was very independently from the conversation that we had the other day. You know, this is one of these things where, mm -hmm. you know, when we were talking the other day, I thought like, huh, hang on a second. That's exactly what I started doing. And I was sort of in two minds about whether this was a good way to do things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's just sort of, you know, confirmed to me that actually maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought I was. <laughs> but here's the situation. Uh, so, you know, when I shoot boxing, I've explained it earlier, um, you know, what happens is you're, you're usually in a place that's not necessarily... Um, lit uh, in an ideal way. You know, it's it's a spectator spot. The ring itself is is lit. Uh, everything, the audience are not lit. Um, and then it really depends on it depends on the company that set up the ring as to whether that lighting is any good or not. It also depends on the size of the venue, whether there's ceiling lighting. Like if you're in a really in a massive place, that lighting uh, that light could be quite far away from the from the ring side. It's it's just not. You know, you just never know. It's it's never really ideal. So you're always shooting in a place that's that's slightly under it anyway. But what happens with boxing is, you know, you've got to control a number of different things. First of all, it's a pretty fast sport. People swing at each other. I mean, some people are very slow, arguably, but other people, you know, get at it at super high speed and you know exactly, you know, they're going to be powered out by the end of round one. They're not going to make it into round three to carry on like that because, you know, but, you know, they're swinging their fists around, you know, and uh, and they're running around the ring. So it's, it's a fast-paced sport. Now, I'm shooting to sell. So these images are specifically made to be sold after the event. And one of the, one of the things that I have to do is I have to freeze action. So, you know, of course, we could talk about how sometimes you know, actually seeing a little bit of motion in the image can convey a sense of action and speed. All of that's cool. true, but the purpose for which I create this imagery um, 
well, they need to be pretty frozen as far as, you know, movement needs yep. to be frozen. That's, that's, that's the brief anyway. So I'm going to make sure that that's happening. So that, it's, that immediately sets me, um, it gives me a limit as far as shutter speed is concerned. So I know that I'm going, I don't know, I know that I'm going below 640 or something like that, then um, it's just not going to happen. You know, I need to be above that. I need to be at 800 plus really. And even that, it can be dicey sometimes. But I know that this is just this sort of, the, the lower limit at where I can move uh, with my shutter speed. So my shutter speed is, that's pretty much blocked. You know, I I, I don't really have a lot of leeway there. Right. Um, as far as aperture is concerned, well, I can open up the aperture to its maximum setting, which is usually 2.8 with the lenses that I shoot. So that's that's my limit there. Yeah. I can't go any further than that. Right. So the only thing that now allows me some degree of variability is the ISO. And right. what I've found is, is that if I, I use the same principles as I, as I do in concert photography, whereby I write the shutter speed, I lock the ISO and I write the shutter speed, well, that will give me well-exposed images. But the problem is there may be times where I have to drop the shutter speed below what I know works for the purpose of these images. Yep. And that basically ruins the whole idea as to why I'm taking these images in the first place. So yep. using auto ISO and setting up a limit, for example, is is actually the perfect solution for that because it means that every shot is properly exposed. Um you know, it will never go beyond the limit after which those images are so noisy that they're not usable, right? Um, mm -hmm. Also, bearing in mind that they're being sold as five by sevens. They're not being put on the side right. of a bus. So again, right? you know, it's, right. it's one of these things. Um, it's a mm -hmm. question of like how good is good enough when it comes to that. And that's, that's really important when it comes to imagery like that. Right. Um, but what happens is because it's auto ISO, it basically means like the other night, I set my upper limit to 10,000. Usually 6,400, because usually I know I, that's fine. But in this particular instance, it was 10,000. Well, when I uploaded the images, the thing is, the lighting changes. A, a boxing ring, people can imagine, is usually lit from two sides. There's, there are lights in two corners. Um, if, if you're in bad luck, they're really crappy, cheap LED lights. Then you've got a whole other issue when it comes to flickering and all the rest of it. But that's, right. that's how uh, boxing rings are lit. Typically, all they have a light for above. That's basically, that's the standard. Um, and, you know, it basically means that depending on where you are, because I'm right by the ropes. I'm talking, mm -hmm. talking about fast movement and camera shake. I say, well, I mean, every event I shoot, I've got a situation where I've got some hand swinging at me or somebody's backing into my lens because I'm literally, literally by the ropes. So I'm literally right mm -hmm. there so I can get really cool shots and really good angles. Um, but it also means that occasionally I might have to duck really quickly or get out of the way or swing back because, you know, it's, because it, the, the problem is, you know, it's like, it's what they say on like review mirrors, you know, objects appear further away than they actually are. That's exactly true when you're looking through a lens, you know, you kind of think like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, that's fine. There's a lot of distance between me and the, and the, and the fighter, uh, because you're shooting at 24 mil and they're actually right in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is right. a take one step backwards, like they're back into your lens, you know, then you've got, you end up with a black eye. But so the reality is, you know, really when, you know, uh, when you, when you come home and you check your images and you check, especially what the ISO settings actually were, you realize that yes, there are some, some corners and some angles where the ISO might go up to 10,000, but, but really 
by and large, they're going to be anywhere between, I think in this case, we're anywhere between 3,200 and, and, and 6,400, something like that, you know. So actually, this upper limit is useful because it, it means that it means that you're never going to go beyond what you can accept or what you find acceptable. Absolutely. But it, yep. but it also means, and you know, the biggest difference for me, and this, there's a downside to this as well. So when I used to shoot with a D750, with a DSLR, I used to right. basically upload all my images and it mm -hmm. used to, you know, you start culling and I would say I probably had about, I don't know, maybe a 60% keeper rate at best, <laughs> right? And that means right. images that were, you know, exposed correctly, that were sharp, mm -hmm. la la, you know, all the rest of it. Cool. Okay. Which basically meant that, you know, 60% would be shooting a thousand images. So usually, I mean, typically I'd shoot about, you know, a few thousand, 3,000 images mm -hmm. or something. You know, 60%. I mean, that's, that's like, that's 1,800. That's 1,800 images all of a sudden that you mm -hmm. then have to edit, you know, or cull through, or cull again to, to reduce the number even right. further. This is, takes extra time. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, but what I found using using auto ISO and using depth method, um, my keeper rate's really gone up dramatically. And I know the D6 two has a better autofocus system on the rest of it, and that, that obviously helps. Right. But the keeper right. rate now is about 95%. And mm -hmm. that, that actually gives me a whole other problem, and that's the fact that now I have to cull through many more images because all of a sudden, it's not as easy to say, like, bah, that's autofocus, that's underexposed, yep. get rid of that, get rid of that. You know, Now I'm yep. looking at, like, out of the 3,000 images is something that I shoot. I'm looking at like literally 2,800. I'm thinking, sure. oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, the, the good news is it won't be that much longer until we have software that's going to do a lot of that culling work for us. I mean, we kind of already yeah. do, but it's going to get better and, and you know, more detailed. But but sure, I, I mean, it, that's that's a byproduct of this technology, just as incredible as it is. So, and I do yeah. think... Kirsten, there's one thing that I want to make sure that that I mentioned in this whole conversation that I think is important. We talked about, you know, I joked about photographers having PTSD about noise, uh, but now we're throwing this word auto around like, oh yeah, auto, auto, auto. I'll be the first to say for years, I have been a person that has said, ah, auto is the four letter word for forget about it. Like, don't shoot on auto. So yes, it's like suddenly I've changed everything and I'm talking in a completely different direction. Only kind of. So I want to make sure that people really understand as much as we're talking about using auto ISO and we're talking about it glowingly and how great it is, this is not in any way permission to just set it and forget it. Hence, that's why I talked about using the exposure compensation dial. Uh, yes, in certain fast-paced situations, like some of the situations you talked about, it actually makes more sense to set it and forget it and be working within the acceptable dynamic range of your camera. Again, that's problem solving and that's an exception. But it's really important, folks, if, if you want to try this, understand that the one very important element is the exposure compensation down. The great part with all the cameras that are on the market today, they're all customizable. You know, some, some cameras have uh, the exposure compensation up on the top. Some of them you can set your thumb wheel up so you're doing it there. So you can set it up so that it's convenient for you in whatever position on your camera. But you want to make sure that you're, if your camera is not already convenient by design, my Sony just happened to have it on that court, which is great. 
uh, if your camera doesn't, you want to make sure that you're setting that up in a spot where it's convenient for you. So you're really, you're trying to create a workflow. And that's, I find, one of the biggest challenges that photographers have with exposure. I, I run uh, a Facebook group and a photography community, and I'm routinely looking at work from you know, new photographers. And as somebody that's been doing it for a long time, it's a trigger for me because I'm always a little baffled when they'll show me their screen with Lightroom or Bridge, and the exposures are just all over the place, like constantly. And that is simply a byproduct of not having a good workflow. So even for you like landscape photographers where aperture is an incredibly important thing to you uh, or a bird photographer where shutter speed is an incredibly important thing, I, I'm not changing any of that. I'm not suggesting you change that. But what I am suggesting is this workflow, shutter speed with purpose and do it first. That's kind of the throwaway one in the sense that it's quick and it's easy to decide. More often than not, apertures are one where you're going to maybe need to experiment a little bit to sit, figure out, do I have enough depth of field or as little depth of field as I really need? So that may take a little bit more. And then ISO, with the help of exposure compensation, set that on auto and let the camera do the heavy lifting. That's the auto part. With the exposure compensation, you're fine-tuning. And then an example of you know some of the the scenarios that Kirsten has mentioned, it makes sense to let the camera do all the lifting with auto ISO as long as you are comfortable, like in the contrast situations, that you're going to be within the dynamic range tolerance of your camera if it's off a little bit. Because remember, as great as these cameras are, they're still computers. So they can see what we see and do an incredibly good job of analyzing it and responding to it. But what they can't do is they can't see what's in our mind's eye, meaning how do we want the scene to look? And I don't know that they'll ever get quite that far. It'd be really cool if they did, but I don't know if they will. So so that you don't want to set that auto ISO and just let it go and, and do its thing. It's still very important to pay attention to. Exactly. And, you know, again, it always depends on on two things, really, you know, on the situation at the end, the kind of things that you're shooting um, and the ultimate purpose of those images. So, yep. you know, the situation is basically, you know, when you're shooting something like boxing, for example, um, it's a very fast paced sport. It's in fact, mm -hmm. you know, at times it's so fast that if, if, even if you just, if you think for a split second to, to, you know, to move the, the wheel on the back of your camera, you, you are going to miss the shot. That's, you know, yeah. that's how fast, that's how fast yeah. it is. And so, so at that point, you need to trust in the technology and it's great if you yep. can, you know, with, with modern day cameras. Um, sure. Because it basically means you, you get the shot when otherwise you wouldn't have. In a concert situation, it's a little bit different because um, although things move quickly, um, there's still a little bit of, there's a little more time for that. Um, so it's, yeah. it's a little bit easier. So that's the situation yeah. itself. But the, you know, the purpose is, it's also extremely important. I'll talk about workflow, uh, especially when it comes to editing there in a second. So the purpose mm -hmm. is, is super important. Um, when I shoot boxing, I'm not shooting for the next Pulitzer Prize. Like I'm not creating art. You know, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm creating a product that's being sold after the fact. And all the money that's being made, actually just to put it out there, um, with these events that I shoot, um, it all goes to cancer research. So it's because yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a charitable sort of thing. 
So, and it's, it's fantastic. I mean, these events make tens of thousands of pounds per event. Um, and it all goes into, mm -hmm. um, to the cancer research charity, which is a phenomenal, oh. phenomenal thing. So, um, but it basically means that, you know, I need to create product that can then be sold afterwards. Um, right. and, and as I mentioned earlier, they'll get printed as five by sevens. And that's, that is, mm -hmm. so <laughs> they're not being you know, a five by seven. For all of you out there right. who think in inches, um, it's it's not very large. I can't even I can't think what that would be in centimeters. Let me think. Uh, Twelve twelve and a half by twenty five centimeters, something like that. So no, not particularly, not particularly big. Right. Anyway, so and I should know really, because you know I live in metric. Why well, don't I know that? I know <laughs> idea. Anyway, um, um, so so yeah, so workflow. Now, I create. Well, so I have to deliver typically between, I would say between 600 and 1,000 images per event. And it basically mm -hmm. means that, you know, I shoot about 3,000, I think, and out of those, yeah, so usually yeah, about 3,000. Out of those, I'll, I will deliver between 600 and, and 1,000 images, depending on how many, how many bouts there are and how many, how many people manage to stay the whole three rounds, <laughs> you know. When I'm right. shooting boxing, I tell you what, somebody gets knocked out in the first round, I'm like, Let's even just do edit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yep. But uh, you're not so good for the not not so good for the, partic uh, the participants. But you know, yeah, I like it. What can I say? Um, <laughs> anyway, so so now you know now I've got to edit um, 600, 800, a thousand shots. Mm -hmm. Now, if I approached each image like it's a piece of art, I would be editing those for the rest of my life. Sure. So you can't. First of all, you can't do that. Also, right. they need to be um, uploaded really within 48 hours of the actual event finishing because otherwise, you know, they lose their value because people won't buy them anymore, you know, and so right. therefore we'll generate less money for cancer research. So it's, you know, right. so, um, so I need to be able to get through this amount of images really, really quickly. And of course, I'll automate the process to a degree. So what I do is <laughs> like a little tip uh, when it comes to um, workflow in Lightroom. So I use a Stream Deck, which I can can hold up here, mm -hmm. which is this little device with lots of buttons on it that I can program um, uniquely for different software packages. So when I'm editing in Final mm -hmm. Cut, so when I'm editing video, I have one set of, of hotkeys, basically. When I'm using, um, when I'm doing a podcast, I have a different set. And uh, when yep. I'm using Lightroom, I program a different set of, of, of hotkeys for that. So for mm -hmm. instance, you know, I know that the images that come straight off my camera, they're really exposed so well that I can literally just hit auto-tune and it'll basically put everything exactly where it needs to be. And that works, I would say, 99 times out of 100. And it basically right. brings the image to the point where they're absolutely printable, they're perfectly exposed, everything's working well. So I don't really need to go into every single setting. I really need to press one button. So one of my buttons <laughs> on my Stream Deck for that is basically auto-tune. And that's what it does. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I also use a um, a tablet. And what I do is I I set the uh, I basically turn on the um, the crop in Lightroom so that I've got the crop grid up there. And then basically yep. what I can do is it's all cropped to five by seven, obviously. So all I'm going to yes. do now is with my with my tablet and with my pencil, I'm going to change the crop. So I do two things. I press one button here, I change the crop, and then I'm just going to touch the next image on the film strip at the bottom of Lightroom, 
to move on to the next to the next image. That's right. three points of contact for each image. That's yep. all it takes. And I'll get the images to the point that in combination with the way my camera is set and the way I shoot, and I've done it for quite a few years, I kind of know where the angles are. Um, all that helps. But once I've culled the, the images and I've reduced it down to the the lot of images that I'm actually editing, um, I I can I can edit each image in probably un, under five seconds. Uh -huh. And that makes sense because I've got to deliver a thousand of them. Yep. You know, because if you yeah. think about it, I, each I mean, it's a great longer, example of a job specific, you know, workflow. Absolutely. 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 And again, just to reiterate, you know, I know lots of listeners or viewers will basically, you know, hold their, their head or, you know, in, in shame, not really. Um, right. What I'm trying to say, yeah, anyway, before I get lots of comments, is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, the the point here is, again, I, I just reiterate this, is I'm not creating art. This is completely different. If there was right. an amazing shot where I had, like, an incredible um, shot where I captured a moment, uh, you know, of action, you know, yes, that's different. Of course, you'll spend a lot more time editing that that shot sure. without a shadow of a doubt but it, um but yeah it all comes back to why that's i mean that's it exactly that's yep. yeah that's exactly it's the central question is is really why and a lot of people when mm -hmm. they, especially when i first get into photography they tend to center around the how mm -hmm. too much and it is really the why is really the important question right well i think instinctively and, and this is one of those words i'm not insulting anybody before i even say this instinctively as a species humans were a little bit lazy and what i mean by that is so again i'm not trying to insult anyone um we work to develop things in our lives so that we have to do less work and even like with the technology we're talking about all this technology we work to make it smaller lighter faster more efficient you know all of those things so it is really kind of that shortcut mentality people are like well how do i do this well, unfortunately, how is extremely important, but how is often not the key question. It's kind of like when, you know, you see this on Facebook or social media all the time, but uh, you probably even get it in comments like on your podcast or that on YouTube, people will type like, what's the best portrait lens? What's the best light for shooting portraits, right? What's the best? Well, unfortunately, best depends on a very, very long list of details that, that all kind of go back and start with why, why yeah. are you shooting this in the first place? What do you hope to accomplish? Where will you be doing it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then we can say, well, the best in that situation is going to be this, but it's even like, you know, the idea that, oh, an 85 millimeter is the best portrait lens. That's crap. Any environmental portraits, this is going to say, what? I'm not going to use anything over 35. Like, right? So, you know, it, it all goes back to the why. And, and that's the challenge. But you're right. We, we tend to look for shortcuts. And, and it, it's really understanding it more. Even what you and I were talking about in the beginning with the photo quotes and learning about all these photographers in the past, that's a big part of what I've been connecting with and going through all that information is really learning a lot more about their motivations and even about their life histories and what led them to make the choices they make. Because when you start to get that kind of understanding, it, while it on one hand may sound really academic and really nerdy, I'm finding when I get into that, it's actually helping me broaden.
broaden my creative thought process a lot. This I've been working at it so long. I've got this creative thought process, but it's the way that I see the world. And getting a chance to get that input from other people, not not just by looking at a finished picture, but really understanding their why and their how. Uh, that's where I'm finding the real value in, in learning all that information because it it gives me new tools. It gives me new approaches and new thoughts to work with. It's your new approaches. It's actually, I think that's key. You know, um, I, yep. I'm really a sucker for new approaches, you know, especially when it comes to things like, you know, editing processes and stuff like that, because sure. I don't necessarily want to spend eight hours in front of a computer screen editing right. images. You know, if I could do this much faster, or if there's a more logical, um, more rational and more economical way that I can do something, like with the use of something like a stream deck, for example, um, right. you know, it, it makes so much sense. It's just I, really... I have to know, interrupt and, you and tell you, I didn't realize that Stream Deck would work with Adobe products because I've got a bigger Stream Deck than you do and I'm going to be spending my night programming it now. So. Oh, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> yeah, it works with anything because you can you can program hotkeys. You know, whatever your keystrokes are, right. um, you just okay. program them in. So you can you can make it you can make it whatever you want it to be. And that's, that's the beauty of it, you know. Um, and uh, SenseLab make a great product, um, which is basically, you know, Sense, SenseLab... Um, Right. make graphics tablets um but they yep. have this this bluetooth uh, element to it called hotkeys which is sort of a thing that you yes. is completely independent of the of the actual um of the actual tablet and you can yep. program those just like a stream deck you can program this these hotkeys to yep. absolutely anything you know and it's it's beautiful yep. because you know it, just like uh, just like the stream deck depending on what software you you open up on your computer it'll just recognize that and it'll immediately mm -hmm. bring out you know the the, the program keys that you've programmed for this particular right. software application, which is which is great, and so you know, like I said, I use it for absolutely anything. I I originally bought it um, mainly for the podcast, um, right. and so it makes things easier for me um, when I'm actually mm -hmm. recording the podcast, and I can sort of drive the visual experience of it more easily. Um, but yeah. then I realized, well, no, hang on, I can use this for anything. I can use this for, you know, now yeah. video editing is a great example, like Final Cut Pro or. Right, whatever you whatever you may be using, but mm -hmm. in in video editing, uh, there are so many, um, so many uh, uh, keystroke combinations that I've programmed right. into the Stream Deck that yeah. it makes the whole process much much quicker. I literally have one hand on the mouse, right. no. the other the thumb on the on the Stream Deck, and it is it, it just works so much better. It's yeah. quicker, saves me time, yeah. you know. Awesome. If you awesome. think like, if you're editing a thousand images and you save one second per image, that's a thousand seconds. Oh yeah, that adds up quickly. That's, sure. That's basically Netflix yeah. for you, right there. Evenings yeah. entertainment on Netflix, <laughs> sorted by saving one second per image. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you do it? I mean, come on. Seriously. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's always the thing. It's you know, it's it's finding new ways of doing things. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's human nature to sometimes, you know, to kind of get stuck in a rut and to do things the same way. And this is, sure. incidentally, you know, as we were talking earlier, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the only reason why we, we call the, the sensors sensitivity ISO now is because that's just right. something that was borrowed from the film days. Um, yeah. We just, you know, humans are just change adverse, I think, sometimes. Yeah, for, I mean, very much so. And I think in, in that, you know, in that regard, I think the camera companies did the right thing. Like, I'm not trying to villainize them for for doing that. It was a very logical thing to do. 
I think where the fault lies is with us as photographers. You know, as an industry, we've adopted these changes. We've evolved with all this technology, but we haven't actually taken the time as an industry to really understand how it's actually working. And, you know, especially now that we're several generations down the road and with mirrorless cameras, we haven't really looked at, you know, should we be doing things the way we were doing in the film days? Does it make sense to think the same way? And the fact is it doesn't because thinking kind of in film terms and film workflows means you're spending a lot of money on incredible technology and not getting the most from it. Right. It's, you know, it's like, I always joke with, you know, people that have a habit of doing their composition in post and their reasoning is, well, I'm never sure, you know, I don't want to crop it in camera because I might change my mind later. Uh, you know, and to a certain level, there's some logic there, but at the same time, that also means that you're spending a whole lot of money for megapixels that you're not using. Right. So, um, you know, there's a balance point, right? In the old days, look, you, you wanted every, every piece of film that you could get in that image. So, you know, you learned to crop in camera and every now and then you screwed it up, right? It was part of the learning process. Um, so again, it, you know, it's a balance point, but I, I think if we, if we just keep blindly talking about photography, the way it's been talked about for decades and decades and decades, uh, we're really not helping each other we're not helping the industry we we need to get a better understanding as an industry of how the gear is working what it's really capable of doing and i think a big part of that challenge for people it's it's not the ability to understand it it's the fact that the changes are coming so rapidly so it's on one hand that's really cool on the other hand that's a lot of keeping up to do in terms of you know learning and, and understanding it. You know, absolutely. It's it's been absolutely frantic, and we haven't even. I think we mentioned we mentioned the word AI once. <laughs> so yeah. far, this conversation, yeah, right? But that's a whole different yep. thing. I mean, it's you know that changes yeah. everything. I, well, I mean, not to mention for those you know they they get freaked out about stuff like that. So much of what our cameras do, um, eye tracking, autofocus, all that kind of stuff. That stuff's all technically AI. So you've all been walking around with AI tools for years already. Now everybody's like freaking out about AI. AI is not bad. People will abuse these things, right? So yeah, will it cause problems along the way? Of course it will, but the AI is not going to cause a problem. It's people that are going to cause a problem. Um, I look at it from the standpoint of, am I ready to like jump ship and do everything with AI? Of course not. But I also can see tons of creative potential behind AI. So for me, I just want to kind of stay abreast of it. I always tell people, look, just just don't stick your head in the sand. You know, stay aware. You know, you don't ultimately want to become a dinosaur because we all know how that worked out, right? So for me, it's it's about, you know, just kind of paying attention and looking at what are the possibilities. But all of the running around like the world is ending and the sky is falling because AI is going to take our jobs as photographers and this kind of stuff. AI is not going to replace this. You mentioned earlier, you know, might some people be satisfied with, you know, an app that can create a picture for them for their business profile. Some people will be very satisfied with that. And those people are not going to ever consider spending the money to have a professional photographer do it. Uh, but absolutely. That, exactly. Right. There will still be agree. a demand for professional photographers. That, that's not going to go away. 
Exactly. That's that's a, a very insightful conversation I had with Gary Hughes actually a few months ago. Um, so you know, if yeah. you're listening to this podcast, check out that episode because that's exactly what we talked about. You know, uh, the the impact of you know AI and and certain apps that allow you to, to take your own headshots. You know, that you take a selfie mm-hmm. and it basically turns it into a good looking like commercial headshot. You know, sure. The thing with that is, it's that is very useful for some people without a shadow of a doubt. Um, yep. But unless you're really a, a bottom-end headshot photographer, you know, those people wouldn't have bought your services anyway. So you're not really losing any clients. They, they weren't your clients in the first place, so therefore you haven't really lost any clients. That's that's the thing, you know. And sure. those people who want, because I always say this, you know, with headshots in particular, you know, people, of course they come and they buy a photo, but what they're really paying you for is, on one hand is expertise, of course, but on the other mm-hmm. hand, it's the experience. Yeah, that's a really yep. important thing. Because they all come Absolutely. through the door and they all say the exact same words when they first come in. And it's like, oh, I'm not phonogenic. I never look good in the photograph. That's the first thing they say. And then when they yep. leave, they're like happy, they're chilled out, they had a really good time. They really love the photo that that you know we managed to create. Sure. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. That's the experience. And that's why they walk Absolutely. out and think, yeah, that was money well spent. And that's never going to change. An app isn't going to change that. Exactly. You know, and that's right. that's the thing. So, and where the opportunity lies, I'm a bit of a marketing nerd, so I follow a lot of marketing trends and a lot of the research that's being done. Younger generation, Gen Z, they're starting to come of age in terms of hitting the point where they have disposable income. Gen Z and younger millennials have made it very, very clear they're not that interested in possessions. They're not worried about owning homes. They're not worried about having the coolest cars. They don't have to have everything. They want to invest their time and their money in experiences. They want to live life and experience the world. And for photographers, the simple math is you've got to lean in to the experience. But here's the irony. And I'll throw this out. I'll be the old guy in the room real quick because I know we, we're going to have to wrap up. But the irony of that whole statement is that too is history repeating itself. Uh, I'm going to use an example from the United States back in the mid-1980s. So to roll back history, Ronald Reagan was president. The And this is not political, but he was the president. Um, the economy in this country was, was tough. We were in a recession. Uh, it was just tight everywhere. But there was one thing in particular, whether you liked him or hated him, Ronald Reagan was a great cheerleader for being an American. He made people feel good about being an American. So during this time period where money was tough, people were getting laid off like crazy. People would go to the shopping malls on a Friday night. And if you went to the shopping mall on a Friday night in the United States, you could come upon a storefront where if you stood there for a few minutes, you would see women just streaming into this. Usually two or three at a time, sometimes alone, but usually two or three at a time, they'd be in there for about two hours. When they came out, they'd have a white envelope tucked under their arm. They'd all be laughing like they had a great time. They would have the biggest 1980s hairsprayed hairdos that you've ever seen, tons of makeup on. And if you look closer in their clothing, there are probably still some random feathers from boas. They had been in a store called Glamour Shots. And then they went home with these pictures in the white envelope. Overwhelmingly, they tucked them in their sweater drawer, never to be seen again. They didn't frame them or hang them on the wall. So why would somebody go and pay all this money for pictures 
that they were actually going to hide because they were kind of embarrassed by them. They went for the experience. It was a chance to get made up. It was a chance to be spoiled a little bit and have fun. And there's the message for photographers today. And here, at least in the, in the US, there are photographers that are building incredible businesses by even boudoir photographers in particular. They'll start out their client at a, a spa first thing in the morning, right? And the person goes, you know, for a whole spa treatment and they get a massage and then they go to a hair salon, they get their hair done and their nails done and then they get their makeup done. And then the picture or pictures, that's just kind of the, the memorialization of the whole experience. And that's where photographers have to let go a little bit. Unfortunately, we do photography selfishly because we love the process. The people that want our photography, it's not actually about our photography. It's about the experience. Certainly, they're going to yeah. tell you they want a great picture, and they do, but they also want a great experience. But that's, that's, that's exactly that's it. For anybody that wants to make money, that's the key. Absolutely, because the thing is, like, and that's also from a business perspective, it works perfectly because if people have a great experience shooting with you, they will recommend you to their friends and colleagues and so on and so forth. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing. If, and if even in the social out, media world, word of mouth rocks. It's still the best. It, exactly, you know. This, um, it's so funny when you mentioned the uh, you mentioned those images uh, in the US. Um, yep. I, not too long ago, I think it was sometime in the summer, I went to a, a local, um, we have these little canal, uh, canal festivals is what they're called here. Basically, yeah. where, where I live in the south of England, just outside of London, mm -hmm. we have a lot of canals. So they used to use them for yeah. um, for shipping uh, goods and stuff on long boats, right? So they're like quite narrow mm -hmm. little canals. And, uh, and each little town that's right by the canal has its own little canal festival. And of course, it's a great opportunity for the whole community to come together and there's like stalls and whatnot, you know, food and right. stuff for kids to do and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I went to our local canal festival in the summer and um, I came past this stall and I looked at the stall and it was, it was a, phot a local photographer. And what they specialize in is um, Hollywood imagery from the 1930s. So it's all black and white. And at first- Like I George Harrell images. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I looked at, I walked past it. My first thought was like, oh man, what a lot of kitsch. But then I looked at the images and I thought, I all of a sudden realized it was like a light bulb, you know, a light bulb is going up. I'm thinking, actually, look at all these people in the pictures. That's amazing. They're made up like in the 1930s with all the makeup and the hair sure. and the, uh, you know, and the, mm -hmm. and the dress and everything. And and the poses are, and you know, the whole, obviously the studio is, is all kitted out there exactly the right props and all the rest of it. Yep. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like, this actually is amazing. And of course, as a photographer, I'm immediately looking at, ah, but how's the lighting been executed? I'm thinking, this is looking really good. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, hmm, this is really good. I like it a lot. You know? Yep. And I can imagine yeah, that I, if that's... you, you know, if you went there, and of course, uh -huh. I'm immediately thinking, oh, maybe I should talk to my wife when I'm doing something like that. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I can totally imagine I mean, it'd be it a great is, experience. It's all about the experience that you provide as a photographer. I mean, that is the key. And and I think it's even important for amateur photographers that if they photograph people in any way, shape, or form, even if they're they're street photographers for that matter. And I'm not talking about the street photographers issue with the 300 millimeter lens and the person never knows you're taking a picture. I mean, street photographers that are working with short lenses and that do interact with their subjects. Um, even for that photographer, the concept of what kind of experience do you provide is crucial to you being able to develop work that is great and also that is unique because 
you know, it's it's a it's a people process. And so leading with a little bit of empathy, trying to understand you mentioned before about understanding your client, all of that is extremely important. Absolutely. And um just as you mentioned, uh street photography, there's uh, one of our former guests, Dino Sarawas, is a fantastic example of exactly what you were talking about. Um you know, anybody um Again, anybody listening to this, you know, check out the episode with Dino Sauer. It's uh, it's perfect. We're, in this episode, we're talking about social media in particular, but what he does is amazing. And if you get an opportunity to check his work out on um, on it, Instagram, for example, and on TikTok, go and do that because it's it's actually really what we call lovely over here in the UK. Um, right? What he does is he approaches random people in in the public uh, in a public space. Um, Hello. The people that he thinks have an interesting look about them or just have something interesting to photograph. And he'll right. approach them and ask them whether he can take their photograph. Um yeah. and then he'll he'll post that photograph on Instagram. And it's it's sort of you know, when you when you think about it, it kind of see immediately seems I don't know, when somebody tells you that, do you think like, oh that's a little bit seedy maybe or something that's weird, you know, like right. when you just walk up to strangers and you ask them to take a photograph, it's a bit right. weird. Um but the way he does it is absolutely beautiful. Because um, he has a really nice, personable personality. And the way that he approaches people uh, endears him to those people immediately. Um, And that's before they've even seen the end product. And his photography is outstanding as well. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, what's really really fascinating about what he does is, is, is that he has, I don't know, his girlfriend or something actually filled the whole process and then he uses that as behind-the-scenes footage on Instagram, yep. which kind of gave him the sort of overnight Instagram success that, that he enjoyed. But, right. but, you know, that being said, the actual work is amazing. Like, the photography is amazing. But it's just the way that he approaches people is just absolutely beautiful and I'm sure copied all over the world to the nth degree. Sure. For sure. Sure. But it's yep. a really good example of, you know, for people of really... Um, so, you know, happy to take part in what he's trying to do because they really enjoy the experience that they have, even if it's just only five minutes, you know, of an interaction. Yep. But it's a really pleasant, yep. positive interaction. And that, you know, it, that's why it works. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, it's interesting because when I spoke to him, you know, I was wondering, well, how, like, how many no's do you get? Like, how many times, like, uh, you know, we're seeing the successful attempts on Instagram, but really right. in reality, like, how many times do you get flopped off? And he goes, not very many mm-hmm. times, actually, maybe one. Sure. In, 30, you know, something like that. Yep. And you just go, wow, okay. Sure. It's an interesting yeah. thing. It's, em- empathy goes a long way. I, I mean, uh, I always count my blessings that I started my career doing newspaper work because you kind of get force-fed those lessons because as a newspaper photographer, especially back in the, the 70s, uh, small-town newspapers, uh, we chased a lot of car accidents and fires and things like that. So you're you're walking into other people's lives at the highest of highs and worst, the lowest of lows when they don't really want you there. And uh, you can't just barrel in and pretend that they're not going through the worst day of their lives at that moment because you're not going to be very successful at your job. Um, and... So it, it's kind of a crash course in really understanding um, just how to approach people with a camera and talk to people. But the key to it all is is just try and, try and put yourself in their shoes. You know, there's a stranger coming at you with a camera. How would you want to be approached? 
right? And and you go at it from there. And the great part of it is, is if you really do it with sincerity, in today's world, it's easier only because we have these things in our back pocket where we can immediately show people what we do, which we never used to have. So still requires the same amount of psychology, shall we say, but you know, being able to show people some images right away is incredibly helpful. Exactly. That's exactly that's that's part of Dito's process. You know, he'll immediately show them yep. um his his gallery on, sure. on Instagram and they'll see, you know, they'll, they'll yeah. see what his work looks like. And, and they immediately that's the buy-in. You know, they immediately see, okay, well yep. that's that's what the end result's gonna be in. Yeah. I'm gonna buy into that. Yeah. Um but you know, it's 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 the whole package really. You know, it's the the whole experience mm-hmm. really. His approach, the way he approaches people, the way he talks to people, um, you know, the the sort of kind politeness. It's not you know, it's not yep. rude. It's not like, hey, I want to take a picture. You know, it's very, it's sure. very, very friendly. He also has an Italian accent, which really works really that helps. well in that. That's, it totally see, that's helps. cheating. I'm an American. That's cheating, right? That's like, you know, you're a Brit. That helps you too. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> I don't know. I'm German actually. So it's like, it might be oh, worse. Okay. <laughs> hey, who's there? I but, want to take you yeah, the, Ita- the Italian accent's definitely cheating. That's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that in French accent, definitely cheating. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. On, on that yeah. note. Um, Joe, it's been an absolute yes. pleasure having you on the show, as always. Um, you know, so if you know if you've been listening to this podcast um, and you know you weren't sure about you know uh, using auto ISO or anything like that, so uh, let me tell you, uh, it, it, this technology is only going to make strides forward. You know, we're we're sure. we're living at a time where camera technology has gotten so good that we that there are many more instances where we can really put our trust into the technology. That being said, as always, you know, photography is something where you make decisions based on what your output needs to be. So it doesn't mean that you're relinquishing control um, and you're letting Tesla switch to autopilot. You know, you still have to keep your hands on the steering wheel, my friends. Right. <laughs> but, you know. For sure. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, as always, delightful conversation. Kirsten, it's my pleasure, definitely. I always enjoy talking to you. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I love having Joe on the show. It's a guarantee for a great conversation. Uh, and as always, before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 137 with Sean Luthwaite. I'm sure you'll love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com to help us continue creating and bringing more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully-fledged video version over on YouTube where uh, you can experience plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you're already on YouTube, well, drop us a comment, hit the like button, ring the bell, and share with your friends. Your engagement helps us reach a wider audience all over the world. Thank you for listening and watching. And remember, a new episode drops every Thursday. So mark your calendars. And until next time, well, keep shaking things up in the world of photography. See you next Thursday. Bye.